So we're in the Gospel of John, or you guys are in the Gospel of John. I get to, to open up in the scriptures with you. So if you would, turn to John chapter 10 with me. And because I'm a guest, I'm going to make you do this. I'm going to make you stand up as we read God's word together. So flip to John chapter 10. We're going to stand to read God's word this morning. It's standing uh, in this moment, just kind of a, a sign of, of respect. Um, you know, if your grandma walks in a room and you're sitting on the couch, the respectful thing is to like stand up and give her a hug. So standing can be a sign of respect. So that's what we're going to do as we read from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42 this morning. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? It's a little sarcastic question from Jesus there. Verse 33, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we come to you this morning, uh, we have a description of a, a historical event, something that happened in a time and a place but I am thankful that our faith is not one where we just engage with ideas or talk about historical events, um, but you have invited us into a living relationship with a loving Father. And so we pause this morning to hear from you. Lord, speak. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. So I promise I don't have COVID. I'm like sniffly because there's lots of green trees here. And I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there's not as many green trees there. So the uh, pollen has gotten to me the last couple days. Who and what do you belong to? Who and what do you belong to? That's a question I want you to think about uh, as we go through the passage today. You might be like me, and maybe you maybe have a membership to a gym, and you might say, I belong to a gym. You might say that 
uh, you belong to a co-op, or maybe you have season tickets to something. Maybe you uh, belong to a group that meets every Wednesday, or you belong to a group that discusses subject X on Twitter. It's interesting to me that we use that word belonging in all sorts of different ways. You can belong to a political party, you can belong to a family, you can belong to a church. So I want you to think about that question of belonging. What do you belong to? We all want to belong. That's, I think, one of the most fundamental human desires. We, we want to be known and we want to be loved. We want to be told that you are okay. We want to be told you're acceptable. We all know what it feels like to not belong somewhere, right? You've been in a college, or you've been in a church, or you've been in a living room, or you've been in a family, or you've been in a bar, and you felt, mm, I, don't, I don't belong here. So we, we know what that feels like. And my hope is this morning uh, that as we work through this text, uh, that you would be able to reflect on where you find belonging and a claim that Jesus here makes about belonging. So the passage this morning, there's, there's two uh, kind of bits of historical information just to frame it. So first, uh, John tells us it's the festival of dedication, which just means that it's Hanukkah. So for about 150 years prior to Jesus's words here, uh, the people of Israel, they've celebrated the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. So this guy, Judas Maccabeus, he kicks the Gentiles out of the temple and God provides this miracle to rededicate the temple. And for 150 years, this is celebrated over and over again until we get to this uh, story that we have of Jesus here in the temple courts. And that's, what's, that's, that's Hanukkah celebrated today. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. And Jesus is in a specific place in the temple. John tells us that he's in Solomon's colonnade, a little section of pillars in the temple courts. So a specific place and a specific time when Jesus spoke these words. And Jesus speaks for the benefit of the crowd who is listening. But Jesus' words are also used by John to communicate something to his audience. When John writes these words down, he's communicating something. He's communicating God's words to churches through the telling of the gospel, through the passing on of the gospel. And so these are not just words for 2,000 years ago, uh, but they're also words for churches 100 years after that in Rome or in Corinth. And their churches are words for churches today here in Spokane, in South Africa, in the Philippines, in Albuquerque. The reality is, okay, so I'm a teacher, and I normally teach second graders, and I, I'm part of a church. My wife and I were part of a church. We serve once a month. We, we, do, we do the church stuff, right? Uh, most Sundays, though, what I do is I show up at about, you know, 10 to 10, and I get my tea. I get some nice turmeric tea, and I sit down, you know, and I, I listen, I participate, I sing the songs, I listen to the readings, go through the prayers. And I know, for me, the reality is that, like, over time, I kind of grow cold to the reality that the transcendent God of the universe has called us together to worship him and is speaking to us through the words of the text and through his spirit. It's really, really easy to grow numb to that. I was just talking to Janie as we were standing in the back. Um, a way that I saw this play out just in the last couple of days, I live, like I said, we live in New Mexico. Uh, I grew numb to how green it is here. Like, there's green trees, and there's green grass, and green plants, and green shrubs. 
like you can, you can see things so often or experience things so often that you take them for granted. And, and I know for me, week in and week out, like I can take for granted the fact that God speaks to us through the text and through his spirit. And I just kind of grow numb to that. And I start by saying that because I hope that's not where you find yourself this morning, or at least that can maybe make us rethink approaching a text that it's not that exciting. There's nothing really exciting that happens in the text, but there is something I think really, really important for us today. So what happens? In verse 25, uh, Jesus picks up on really what he was saying in, for you guys, what was last week, uh, the good shepherd. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And when Jesus does that, He's hearkening back to Ezekiel and Zechariah, the prophets who promised. They, they passed along a promise from God that said, I'm going to raise up a leader for Israel who's going to care for and lead them. He's going to be a good kind of leader. He's going to be a good shepherd who cares for Israel. And so when the people come to Jesus in this text this morning, and they say, will you tell us plainly whether you're not the Messiah? It's not a question out of left field. It's because Jesus is saying all these Messiah-y type things. He's doing all these Messiah-y type things. And Jesus answered them, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I used to argue a lot more with people about lots of things, but I used to argue with people about, like, the, the nature of who Jesus is, right? I, they used to happen to me a lot more, and I would often get this sort of pushback. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God, or something to that effect. And if I could go back to my younger self, uh, I would point to this passage here, because Jesus does make claims that, that really only God can make. He, he says, I give eternal life. I, I and the Father are one. He, he can't just be a good spiritual teacher who makes these sorts of claims. He's either God's Messiah, who, who actually knows what he's talking about and, and we, should, we should believe him, or he's a liar and a deceiver who deserves the response that the crowd gives him of wanting to stone him because in their, their religious zeal, they understand what he's saying. That's why they pick up stones to stone him. In verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus' original audience, the people standing there listening to Jesus talk, they understood what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. Let's pick up again in verse 34. Jesus answered them, it's not, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Now, this is, I don't know, a very confusing part of the text. It has been my whole life. I'm not going to camp out here because there's a lot that could be said. You could do like a whole sermon series on it probably. But uh, I'll, I'll share what I've thought to be really helpful as I've just studied through this text. Um, Nick, I think we have Psalm 82. Yeah, thank you. Okay, 
So Psalm 82, this is just part of it, but in Psalm 82, the psalmist is kind of talking about this, uh, this judgment that, that God is making on the rulers of Israel. And, and this is what Jesus quotes. So Jesus appeals back to Psalm 82 when the crowd says, hey, you're claiming to be God. Jesus says, is it not written? And he quotes this, I said, you are gods. You're all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So Jesus appeals to this. Well, what's going on? Okay, so in Psalm 82, there's this sense in which the rulers of Israel, the judges, the kings, they're like little G gods. They're underneath the great big G God. They're little G gods. They're like leaders or rulers underneath him. But they're mere mortals. They'll fall like every other ruler. There's nothing transcendent about them. There's nothing immortal about them. They will die just like every other king. And and Jesus says, if if the, the word of God came to these leaders, like what we talked about, God has always revealed himself to his people. And so he says, if if the word of God came to them and, he, and, and God calls them gods, how much more so the one who is his very own and sent into the world? So the word of God comes to these leaders and rulers, they get this like title, little g God. But there's a distinct difference with the person of Jesus. So unlike them who had the word of God come to them, as we know from the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is the word of God become flesh. He's not just someone who has received from God, but he is actually the word of God become flesh. Or as Jesus says here, the father set him apart as his very own and sent him into the world. So again, Jesus is clarifying his role and identity. He's not just another prophet, uh, but he's something else altogether. And so then Jesus goes on to say, if you don't believe me, believe the works. If you, you don't believe a word I say, just look at all the miracles, look at the things I'm doing, that will validate who I am. And then after that, he goes back into the wilderness. And so people pick up stones, they want to kill him. They want to control him. They want to seize him. They want to stop him. They don't like what he's saying. He goes back into the wilderness where the followers of John the Baptist are. And they're out there by the Jordan River. And they present a really interesting contrast because in the temple courts, in the seat of power, people reject him. But as he goes out into the wilderness, there's these people who say, I heard about him. I believe in him. As I read this text, it really begs the question, what's the difference? What's the difference between the people who hear the message, they see the same things, they see the signs, they hear the stories, they see him, they want to kill him, and another group that sees him, hears the stories, and they go, yeah, that's, that's the one. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. What's the difference between you who believe and your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your best friend? Or maybe you can think of, fill in the blank, your person X, who as you sit here this morning, if they were to think about the fact that you were in a church this morning, they would think, why is that, how can that person be so stupid as to go to a church and believe those things? What's the difference? I think that the answer goes back to what I said at the beginning. It has to do with belonging. So I like to think of myself as a, as a pretty 
like informed person. You know, I listen to the informed radio stations. I read the news from a variety of sources. I like to think of myself as pretty logical and, and well-reasoned. And when I make a decision, whether it's about my faith in Jesus or where church I go to or, or what I believe about all the many social problems that our world faces today, I like to think of myself as a rather like informed decision maker, right? It's not, I, just, I don't just decide because of what feels right. Like I, I think thoughtfully through it. The, the problem with that logic, though, is that study after study after study has shown that that's not how human beings work. That's, that's not how I work. That's not how you work. We like to think that we make all these choices based on our brains, but in actuality, we are more often motivated by our intuitions, by our affections, by our habits. Each of these things, which are formed by the groups that we belong to. Okay. So I'm going to put on really small words on the screen, and I know it's really hot, or it's really, really hot for you, but this is kind of nice for like New Mexico weather. So this is from a book called Reading the Times, which if you are like me and you get stressed out by the news, read this book. It will not solve all your problems, but it will give you a lens through which to read the news. When, the, when it was recommended to me, I was like, oh, this is an apocalyptic book, but okay. I'm going to read it, read the Times, okay, waiting for the signs. No, this is about reading like the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times. That's the idea. This is about how we engage with the world. Social psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Jonathan Haidt have demonstrated that the vast majority of our decisions and actions are based on socially formed intuitions and hunches rather than deliberate, careful reasoning. Kahneman differentiates between two systems that we have for thinking. System one is intuitive, fast, and relatively effortless, whereas system two is rational, slow, and requires hard work. And so the point is that we often use system one, which is like our intuitions. And really, only when that system gets stumped do we kick into the rational thinking, and we, we take time and we slow down. So Bilbro, the author, goes on to say, Kahneman and Haidt warn that when we fall into this rationalist delusion, we neglect the role of our intuitions and biases and hence make worse decisions. This is not a radically new insight into how humans think. These social science-based arguments for the indispensability and indeed benefits of intuition recapitulate arguments that Edmund Burke and Hans George Gadamer, I don't know if that's right, made in defense of prejudice in previous intellectual content, contexts. So hear this. And Augustine famously begins confessions with a prayer that God would guide his restless heart back to its creator. Before he learns to think rightly, Augustine has to love rightly. Hence, the contemporary theologian, Jamie Smith, draws on Augustine reminding us that human persons are not brains on sticks. We are embodied, loving creatures. Here's the point, though. So just one last slide with this. By imagining ourselves as rational beings, we become vulnerable to malformed affections and habits. When we deny the reality of our social modes of reasoning, we become caught up in mindless swarms. Trying to become a community of rational thinkers, we become a swarm of atomized, broken apart emoters. A quick scroll through any social media feed bears this out. So let me use myself as an example on this. And I did this yesterday. So scrolling through the news, click on an interesting article, or you know, sub that for like whatever social media that you scroll through. 
and I click on something and I read someone's opinion or their words and I go, ugh, I can't believe that they said that. Or I can't believe that they think that. Ugh, you know, I just have that sense. I catch myself in that now more often because I'm more aware of it. And I have to correct myself or more often my wife gently reminds me like, Matthew, it's not that you're just more rational or more reasoned or more intelligent than the other people. There's something else going on. You need to check yourself. So I know I'm tempted to think that way sometimes. So what might it be then? Well, I think it's that I'm formed, you are formed, we are formed by our affections, by our loves, by our habits. Um, it's by, by what, we, what we pay attention to in its simplest form. The things that we pay attention to over and over again. And so the things that we have opinions on or comment on opinions on, those things are developed not because of rational head-on-stick type thinking, but it's because of our affections and our habits and our loves. Well, what does it have to do with belonging? Well, I think it's twofold. Sometimes our formation, our loves, our desires, our habits, they're, they're formed by the groups that we belong to or the ones we want to belong to or, I think interestingly, the ones we want to be seen as belonging to. So I think this comes through in um, what's called virtue signaling. So the idea is that the things that I share or say, I present them in such a way to like my audience, whether that's on social media or the group of three friends that I'm talking to, I present them in such a way that signals to them what kind of person I'm like. So I don't say certain things or I do say certain things because I want them to think about me in a specific way. So you want to be seen as like supporting the right issue, Ch change your profile picture or put the bumper sticker on your car, or put, the, put the sign in your yard because issue X, whatever it is, is the issue that our group cares about. And so in that, the groups you belong to, they form your habits, they form your loves, they form who you are because we want to belong to them. We want to be seen as accepted by them and loved by them. And in this passage, the Jews who come to Jesus in Solomon's colonnade, is it because they just see him and they're just like, I don't agree with it, and they walk away? Or is there something else going on there? I think that there's something else going on there. They're, they're part of this group that when Jesus comes on the scene, they're so formed by this need to be a part of that group that though they have eyes, they actually can't see what Jesus is doing right in front of them. Though they have ears, they can't actually hear what Jesus is saying right next to them because the pressure, whether it's explicit and spoken or implicit and subtle, that pressure is there. If you're one of us, you can't possibly follow him. You can't possibly align yourself with that guy. If you would, um, let's look back at verse 25. This is where I want to land, and this is where I want to just meditate as we end. In verse 25, remember the crowd has asked Jesus uh, to tell them plainly if he is the Messiah. He said, I did tell you, but you, don't, you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Notice that Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. In essence, Jesus says, you don't belong to me. So before you get fatalistic here, uh, I don't believe, I don't see any reason in this passage or in scripture in general to think that Jesus is making here some statement about like, well, uh, you, this is how you become a sheep or about how Jesus didn't choose or elect this group to become sheep. So a fatalistic reading would be like, hey, they don't, it's really not their fault. They just drew the short straw. They're there in the text just to help you. I don't see any reason to read it like that. Instead, I, I see that Jesus is pointing out, he's naming something and addressing something that is already true about them. They don't believe because they're not sheep. They don't belong to him. That's why they don't believe his words. So what do his sheep do? Well, they, they listen to his voice. He knows them. And those sheep follow him. And they receive eternal life from him. So to go back to that question that I, I posed at the beginning, who and what do you belong to? That's where I want us to, to land. And, and if, if you're in the back and you're like me and you're over 30 years old now and you're like, oh, I can't see that. I had that moment to me the other day. We were in our like, community group and, oh, I'll read the passage. Like, I can't read this passage anymore. I was, okay, I need reading glasses. But who and what do you belong to? Like I said, we seek belonging. You and I, we want to belong. And we want to be known, we want to be loved, and I know for me, maybe this is just me, but one of my deepest fears in life is not being known and not loved, or to be loved because I'm not truly known, or to be fully known, and thus once I'm fully known, not loved. We long to hear those words that you're okay and you're, you're acceptable. And in our world, we find this belonging in all sorts of places. Um, our close and extended friend groups in our churches, our supporter sections, our political parties, our online communities, the subreddit threads, and the number of likes or comments that we get on a post. That's a lot of where we find our belonging. When we seek our belonging in all those places, though, in all these external means, it can be exhausting. Now, we need it to be external. Uh, something about our psyches needs someone else to say it to us. No matter how much we want to say that we can like, handle it on our own, oh, our psyches will not allow us just to do that. Like, you can't just exist and be like, believe that enough about yourself. You, that will never be enough. So our psyches require that, but we live in a, we live in a world that... Here's an image from the book that I'm stealing a lot of this from. The, have you been to a zoo? You've been to a zoo before? Okay, so there's this uh, thing that affects certain animals in a zoo. And like a lion. Okay, a lion's supposed to live free on the savanna, be able to chase their food, be able to hunt, be able to roam around, not have like little kids scream at them and that sort of thing. Animals go crazy in zoos. But like, term for it, there's like a pop culture term for it called zoocosis, right? Because this animal is in an environment that is not made for them. Uh, it's so warped that even though it looks like the savanna, the lion knows it's not the savanna, and it drives the lion crazy. Our world is like that sometimes. We're like the lion sometimes. I don't know, for me, like the last three years, like I've, I felt like the lion a lot of the times. So 
to deal with that, one of the things that the world tells us is that you are your own and you belong to yourself. So you, you got all the choices in the world, right? You can make your own identity. You can become whatever you want. No one else gets to tell you who you are. You get to decide it. Decide what you're interested in. Choose how you want to express that to other people. Choose how you want to communicate like, well, I keep this part secret, but I do communicate this part. You get to choose what it means to have a good life. You get to define what the good life is. You get to choose a good career and choose a place where you want to live. You get to choose a spouse or choose a lifestyle with no spouse. You get to choose what issues matter to you or choose what issues matter to you enough to talk about in public settings. You get to choose what, what stories you read and, and what you care about. And in that, we find a sense of belonging in the world. That you live an endlessly customizable life, which is really limited only by your imagination and the amount of money that you have to pay for it. So you don't like the way you look. Well, you can get plastic surgery. You can join a CrossFit gym. You can get a tattoo. You can get a piercing. You can change the way you look. It's limited just by your imagination and by how much money you have to pay for it. If you don't like the church, you can find great podcasts online. You can join a small group from one church and you can go to this from another. You get to choose your own adventure. Now, you don't like your spouse or your kids or they're kind of, you know, it's kind of rough when you got four kids. Well, connect with that coworker because, hey, your happiness is what matters. How many movies like glorify that sort of mindset? Uh, you're an adult and you have a hard time making friends. Well, I, this is true. I found this out last week. You can download an app. You can, it, there's a free version and a paid version, but you can get an artificial intelligence friend. If you have a hard time making friends, you can get an AI friend. The AI friend will get to know you, get to know what you like talking about. Say you like what, talking about the Dodgers and the Lakers. You talk to the AI about Dodgers and Lakers, and the AI tells you that they like you. You can customize this life in whatever way you want. Now, oh, here's another important point. Those things can change whenever you want, too. So you want to pursue this career and this place and this thing for a period of time? That's great. But we live in a liquid world, so if that changes, go over here now. And that's, like, that's celebrated for us because we get to make our own way in the world, and it's up to us. And on, on the one hand, it feels like the world of possibilities is open to us. And on another, it feels like the crushing weight of responsibility of making your own way in the world. So I'm going to use another image, and then I'll wrap up. So uh, in the book that I, I quoted from, um, or I didn't quote from, but I'm stealing a lot of ideas from, it's called uh, You Are Not Your Own. It's by an English professor named Alan Noble. And in it, he references this novel called The Bell Jar. And in The Bell Jar, there's a very successful young woman. She gets an internship in New York. She's very successful. She ends the internship and has all the world of possibilities open to her. She can start a family and raise kids. She can go and pursue this career abroad. She can pursue this thing within the same company in New York. And she has great, great opportunities. She has the dream in front of her. And she goes to sleep one night and she has a dream. And in that dream, she's looking at a fig tree and realizes, wow, these figs look beautiful. Fig A looks really good, fig B, fig C, fig D, they all look great. And she's hungry and she, she wants to choose one, but she realizes if she chooses one fig, she has to forego the other fig. And if she chooses fig A, that means saying no to fig B, C, and D. And 
she starts to like get paralyzed by that decision making. And so she sits down and she's still looking at the figs. And she's so paralyzed by an inability to make a decision in the dream, she starves to death and dies. She wakes up and she realizes the figs are her life choices. She has all this endless world of possibilities in front of her, but that responsibility, that crushing weight of making her own way in the world, feeling approval from others, feeling like your choices were acceptable to all of them, whoever they are, she feels that crushing weight and realizes, I mean, it's a sad part of the story. She goes and falls into this like, terrible depression because she feels this weight. Have you ever felt like that? I felt like that three days ago. So why do I say all that? Well, so you can be really depressed when you go and do your Sunday to-do list and you mow the lawn later today and get the sprinkler system set up now that it's not raining. No, I bring it up because I don't think we can really engage with the idea of being Jesus' sheep unless we come to terms with where and how we find belonging already. So we might be tempted to read a passage like this and just say, hey, believe in Jesus, listen to his voice. And those are good things. We should do them. But we do really need to come to terms with what it means to be his sheep and where we already find belonging. Because our, our souls will never rest until they rest in Jesus. And we really only find belonging in him. And that's not just one option among many others, as I'm learning. It's not just like belonging to Jesus is the same thing as belonging to the Libertarian Party or belonging to this club or this gym or this group of trail runners or this homeschool co-op. It's not just one option among many, but it's something entirely different. So let me, do, let me, let me end with two points and then, uh, and then just a passage for number six. So first, as I close, number one, you are not as rational and logical as you think. We often aren't different from the Jews who come to Jesus here. We're motivated by our deep desire to belong to a group, to reassert being a part of that group, that in-group, by saying, no, we're not a part of that group, we're part of this one. And so in that, sometimes, because we find our belonging in that warped sense, we might miss out on the good and true and beautiful things that are right in front of us. Number two, there is no efficient to do here. There's no technique to implement. Uh, we live in a world that is riddled with techniques. You want to sleep better, there's a technique for that. You want to get along better with your family, there's a technique for that. You want your kids to do what you want them to do, there's a technique for that. You want to do whatever, there's a technique for it. There's something to do to improve it, to improve your efficiency. But I don't think there's a technique to implement. There is good news to receive, though, to be reminded of, to embrace, and to attempt to lay hold of. That good news is simply that you are not your own, that you belong to Christ. And even if maybe today you don't think of yourself that way or you haven't felt like that, that feeling doesn't affect the reality that you belong to Christ. To belong to him, it's a, it's a terrifying gift because an image that I find really helpful uh, is like an intimate relationship where you look someone face to face. The priestly blessing that comes from number six, which was used by God's people for eons, uh, it's used in churches today as a reminder of who we are. The gift is that in Jesus, God our Father looks at us, looks in the face, like he did Moses, like he did so many others. He looks at us in the face. And he says, you are known and you are loved. 
So that's why the priestly blessing, I think, goes like this. And so I want to leave us with this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The blessing is God looking at you, turning his face towards you, showing you grace and giving you peace. And that, that is our comfort in life and in death. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the truth that you look at us and you know us and you love us. You are kind, you are patient, you're compassionate, you're gracious, you're forgiving. Sometimes we, sometimes I, tremble at the thought of looking you face to face because I know all of the ways in which I have not lived up to that calling. I know all of the ways in which I continue to do things that I know you wouldn't have for me. And yet, you look at me in the face, you give me grace, you give me peace. And I pray this morning, especially as we come to the table, that you would give us grace and peace, that you would meet us face to face, that we would, through some sort of amazing reality or some very mundane reality, we would experience you looking at us this morning, telling us who we are. In Jesus' name.